I invite all elementary age kids to come downstairs with Mr. Dan up here. Well, good morning. My name is Austin, and uh, usually I'm over there doing announcements at the end of service, but today I get to preach to you from the book of Judges. Uh, so as Robert's been talking about, the book of Judges, in many ways, is a story of failure. Uh, failure over and over again. It's this kind of like this Orwellian dystopia where you have these tragic heroes who rise up and they, they seek to, to overthrow and challenge the system that's been built up around them. But ultimately, they find themselves capitulating to that very same system and falling back into the, the corruption and, and the idolatry that has built up in Israel. And so you have this cycle of, of idolatry and then oppression as judgment that comes in, and then God raises up a deliverer to bring them out of that oppression. But it's not long until that cycle starts over again as they fall back into idolatry. So this morning, we're continuing the story of Gideon. He's one of the three guys we're going to focus in on here in the book of Judges. So if you could open up to chapter 6, uh, there's Bibles under your seats, or if you have brought your own, and we'll be um, starting around verse 24 and 25. All right, so Gideon is a bit of an unlikely hero, right? God shows up, shows up to him, and he's, he's hiding out, and we heard this last week, in the wine press, threshing wheat, which is something you don't want to do in a wine press because it's something you are supposed to do outside. Uh, so it's kind of ineffective, but he's hiding because there's an oppression from the Midianites, this people God has allowed to come in and oppress the Israelites as a form of judgment because of their idolatry. And God comes to, to Gideon and calls him to leadership, calls him to be the hero who's going to deliver, who he's going to use to deliver Israel from this oppression. So let's start in verse 25. It says, That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bowl and the second bowl, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here, with stones laid out in due order. Then take the second bowl and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. Now, before we're too quick to judge Gideon for, for his uh, seeming cowardice here in this moment, uh, let's take a minute and see what God is actually asking him to do here. Okay, so in the middle of their, of their village, you have these altars, one to, to Baal or, or, or Baal and to Asherah. Now, who, who were these idols? Um, the first one, uh, look, in, look at Baal, um, got a few statues here. So one, he's uh, pictured as like a bowl, okay? So a big masculine bowl. Um, usually what would happen in, uh, in a, the herd society is you'd, you'd sacrifice, you'd kill or eat your, your younger bowls. So you'd keep the one big strong one to continue populating the whole herd. And so that, that bowl was sort of the, the alpha, the big strong leader. And so, so Baal is often uh, pictured as that. He was sort of the the, the god of, of storms, and so we also see that here in this one. He's got a lightning rod in his hand, which maybe qu can't quite 
tell that's what that is, but he's holding lightning rod. And so uh, he's, he's seen as like the giver of crops or the controller of storms. Uh, he's provided rain for the people. Now, if you live in a semi-arid climate, like it's not really a big deal here. It never seems to stop raining. But if you're somewhere, you know, I grew up in Southern California where we hardly got rain ever. And, and when you did get rain, all of a sudden everything turned green instantly because it was so used to being parched all the time, right? So if you live in this kind of arid climate, you're, you need rain or you don't have food, right? You're totally dependent upon the weather in that way. And so the people, uh, so Baal, Baal, uh, Baal was seen as, a, as the one who could provide food because he could provide the rain they needed for their crops to grow. Um, the other one uh, that we have here is Asherah. Uh, you also see this is Asherim. That's just the plural form of Asherah. Uh, and, and Asherah, this is getting in kind of the weird pantheon of the, of the Canaanite gods, but Asherah was both his mother with the high god El, who produced Baal, but then also was sleeping with Baal, so also kind of his mistress. It's a little weird. Um, and, and she was a fertility goddess, and so they'd worship Asherah uh, by cult, things like cult prostitution and, and orgies. You'd go down to the temple and have sex with the, the prostitutes there, and that would symbolize having sex with the gods, and they're having sex. And so all of a sudden, now all your, your uh, livestock are being extra fertile, and you're having lots of kids, and they're strong and healthy. And so it was seen as a way of, of ensuring that you had these large herds, and you had a family that was big and thriving, all things that people depended upon. And uh, one, one scholar describes the worship this way. Uh, he says, base sex worship was prevalent. Religious prostitution was even commanded. Human sacrifice was common, and it was a frequent practice, frequent practice in an effort to placate the gods, to kill young children and bury them in the foundations of a house or public building at the time of construction. So this isn't like the greatest thing in the world, right? Like there's a reason God said, I don't want you being around these people. Um, he, so, so, yes, you've got this worship happening in their midst. And you might wonder, okay, how did, how did they get these idols here, right? Like, how did they end up in the village? It'd be kind of like, if you know the people of Israel, it'd be kind of like us having an altar to Zeus here in the church, right? You'd be like, that's a little out of place, right? Like, it's not why we're, aren't we Christians? Like, why do we have this, this altar here? Or maybe if you came here on Sunday morning and, and you're singing songs and, and hearing the scripture taught and everything and you're, you're taking the bread and the cup and then you're going home and you've got your altar to, you know, some other god at home and you're, and you're worshiping that at home, right? It seems like this blatant contradiction. Um, and especially when we, know, when we know about Christianity and Islam and Judaism, right? These are the three great monotheistic religions that a large portion of the world is a part of. And we think about, well, if these are all, they all worship one God, right? And there's a single, a single God. And um, a lot of times this is actually a fault that we give to them, right? That, that, well, Christianity is just so exclusive, right? Their God is the only way. Like, that's, that's just mean, that's exclusive, right? And, and so if you read the history of the Old, if you understand the people of Israel in the Old Testament, it, seem, it should be shocking to us that they have these idols, um, and in some ways, it's, it's weird for us when we talk about God in English, because for us, the English word God is totally generic, right? I can use God to talk about Jesus. I can use God to talk about Zeus. Like, it's just the same word. It's God. But the Israelites had a unique name for, for God. Uh, in Hebrew, this is the word uh, Yavah. Uh, you might see it. So 
The story goes, uh, if we go back to Exodus, Moses is out hiding in the desert, and God calls to him. But he does this by appearing to him in this, this burning bush. And he tells him, I want you to go back to Egypt, and you're going to be the deliverer to set my people free in Egypt. Now, that's a huge task, and, and Moses has got to go convince the people that this burning bush talked to him and told him to get them out of, out of Egypt, right? And so he says, who, who shall I say sent me? And, and he gives him this name. And uh, the way that, that you, this name is often translated is something like, I am who I am. So it literally comes from the, the Hebrew word to be. God, God is I, I am who I am. I am. I am the one, right? Like there's this, there's this finality to that, this all-encompassing, like I am the one God. The God who is, who is being itself. Sometimes people have thought about it that way, but like who, who is the source of all things. Uh, and so sometimes you'll hear, you'll hear God called the great I am. Maybe you've heard that reference. Uh, Jesus, in fact, is one of the ways in which he uh, sort of identifies his own identity with God is by using these I am statements. So one, uh, one place they ask him about Abraham, they say, how, how could you know Abraham? He says, before Abraham was, I am, right? It's this kind of shocking statement, and you can see from the way that the, the teachers of the time react, that they understand he's making this bold claim. He's identifying himself with I am himself, God, the God, not just the God of the Israelites, but the God of everything, right? So this, this is, uh, this, so we, when we translate this in English, because Hebrew didn't originally have vowels, we don't know exactly what the, the vowels were, but you'll see this as either Yahweh or Jehovah. And both of those are really just the same, same name, right? Trying to, us trying to put them into English, because we don't know exactly how they would translate. Um, and so Yahweh is the God of the Jews, right? They are the people of Yahweh. This is the core of their identity. This is who they are, is that they've been set apart by Yahweh. But what we actually see in reality through most of the Old Testament is that the Israelites are polytheists. And like I said, this should come to a shock for us if we know the Old Testament in many ways, and we know the law, we know what they were supposed to do, but what actually ended up happening in practice is that Yahweh would become the national God. Okay? So he was the God of the people of Israel as a whole. So you worshiped Yahweh when you uh, got together for the Passover once a year. Then you, then you worshiped Yahweh. Or if you were going to war, you said, we need to go to war on our enemies, and so we're going to call upon Yahweh to do that. But Yahweh is that big God up there. Over, like, he doesn't really care about whether or not my crops are going to show up this year. He doesn't really care about whether or not, you know, my wife is going to have children or our herd is going to be productive and we're going to have food to eat, right? Like, he's not as concerned about that kind of stuff. But we've got this other God over here, Baal. Well, he promises that if we worship him, he's going to give us a really great harvest. Awesome. We need that. And, oh, Asherah is going to give us lots of children. Well, we need that. That's great. Let's worship these gods, too. Right? We'll have Yahweh when we go to war and all that, but then we'll have these gods to provide these basic things we need every day. And so in practice, for a lot of Israel's history, you actually find them entwined in this polytheistic worship. And 
Yahweh was off in Jerusalem somewhere. You had to go to, there to worship him. But for, for Baal, Asherah, you could build a temple right in, your, right in your own yard. You could just set up an altar right there, worship there. And if you made the right exchanges with these gods, they would give you the things that you wanted and needed. Things like security, uh, comfort, food, all the, those things that people longed for. And I want to make the claim this morning that we too are polytheists. Now this is a little weird on one level because if you, if you look at the, the studies, the number of people claiming to be nuns is rising, so not nuns as in cloistered women, but <laughs> nuns, N-O-N-E, right? of those who are entering college each year, more and more people are saying, I don't believe in anything. In the sense, I don't have any, wor- I don't have any religious affiliation, I don't worship any gods. Um, and so we associate this with, with secularism, being secular. Uh, or people, more people, Robert's talked about this idea of being spiritual but not religious, right? Well, I, I'm not really religious, I don't, I'm not affiliated with any kind of religion, but I'm, I'm spiritual, right? And so in many ways, even as Christians, we at some level are very secular, right? We don't, we don't think about the world as populated with spirits and all these gods and all these things. We think about most of the world as being just this material, physical place, and, you know, we also pray to God, right? If you're a Christian, you, you pray to God, but the rest of the world is kind of absent of that, right? It's just, it's the physical, material world. And so in that way, there's an aspect in which we are secular. But I would say that actually, in those practices are implicit aspects of worship so that we actually are worshiping all the time. And what's more dangerous about this modern idolatry and what makes it so much more sinister is that it is entirely invisible, right? It was really obvious if you're cutting up a cow and offering it to Baal in the town center, right? Like if somebody was going to go do that in Amherst Center, it's like, oh, well, they're not Christian, right? Like, that's obvious. But what if there are lots of ways in which we are doing exactly that same kind of thing, we just don't know it, right? It's not obvious to us because it doesn't seem to compete with what we think of as worship. So instead of today being forced to choose between Yahweh and Baal, maybe it's Jesus and Wall Street, or Jesus and patriotism, or Jesus and my sexual fulfillment, these other idols that are competing for our love and our allegiances. There's this really fascinating illustration of this reality uh, in this, there's a book written by this guy named Neil Gaiman, uh, who's been, he's kind of a modern, uh, modern myth, mythology that he's uh, written as a book that's been turned into a TV show. Uh, I don't, <laughs> I'm not recommending it to you on account of uh, certain content that it has, but uh, he gives us this really compelling picture uh, in this road novel of contemporary American society. And in this contemporary society, it's the, the America today is populated with this pantheon of deities. And on one level, you have the old deities. These are the ones the immigrants brought with them. You know, the, the Scandinavians brought uh, Zeus, or not Zeus, <laughs> uh, Thor and Odin and all these people. And yeah, the Greeks brought Zeus and, and all these people brought in all their gods and deities with them. And so these deities are still around, but because nobody really worships them anymore, they don't really have any power, right? They're kind of these deadbeat gods that just wander around and they, they can't really do a whole lot because nobody worships them. And, and this under, there's this underlying premise that as you worship something, it gains power. 
Now, on one level, he's kind of giving these people power in this more of a, a metaphysical sense, but I think there's this aspect of that, and which is true, that as we worship something, it gains power over us. And it is, his premise is that we are all worshipers, every single one of us. And the question is not, are we worshiping? The question is, what are we worshiping? And so it might not be the, the Norse gods anymore, but instead he presents us with these new gods that are cool and flashy and really powerful because we all worship them today. And, and they're slightly stereotypical, um, but he gives these three main examples. The first one uh, is called Technical Boy, and sort of the personification of the internet and technology. All right, so in, in, the, in the thing, it's this like, dumb teenage boy with his phone who's just texting all the time. Right? But, but it's this, this picture of the way where our lives are centered on and, and built into this constant use of technology that governs our lives. Uh, and then you have media, uh, who shows up as Marilyn Monroe, and she represents the mass media and entertainment. Right? This, that everything to us is about entertainment and being entertaining whether it's politics being uh, a show, right? A lot of people categorize the last few weeks of politics as a circus, right? Because it's, it's taking on this entertaining quality to us. So we start to think of everything in our life as being about amusement and our amusement. And the last one is, is Mr. World, who sort of takes on the, the persona of, he's a guy in a business suit and he represents globalization, right? The, the mass market economy that, that runs the world, these major corporations that sort of run everything in our society. Right? And so they're kind of stereotypical, but he's, he's making this point that there are still these things that we worship. And as we worship them and devote our lives to them, they gain power. And so what we worship has power over us, both individually and as a society. It becomes our master. You know, I didn't, I didn't mention this originally, but the word Baal or, or Baal literally means master uh, or husband, Lord. It was a name that was even sometimes given, uh, used to describe Yahweh before there was as much intermingling between, uh, with, with the other gods and the Israelite people. But this, this idea, this God was master. We worship this God as master over us. And Paul describes this really well in Romans chapter 6. He says in verse 16, he says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. So we may think that these particular gods are going to serve us, right? Whether it's technology or media and entertainment or, or the economy and, and our wealth, right? These things are going to serve us. They're going to make our lives better. They're going to be good for us. But at the end of the day, we find that they are actually the master over us. Um, we, so where do, where do we get these idols, right? Do they just like pop up out of nowhere, right? Did Gideon just wake up in the morning and, oh, there's, hey, there's an Asherah in our town center. That's funny. No, he grew up with them. He inherited these idols from his family. His parents were the first ones to give him his first idols. He was raised in practices of worship to these gods. They taught him, his parents taught him things like what is most important in life, what he should value above all else, how to, to view and handle resources, 
money or, or goods that they had, when and how to work, and when and how to rest, how to treat family and friends, spouse, siblings, all of these relationships, all of these practices that are just part of daily life growing up, taught him a way of being in the world, how to worship, how to interact with the things around him. Those who raise us show us how to be people. And for those of us here, especially those of us who've grown up uh, in America, uh, we, we like to think of ourselves as these autonomous individuals, right? I determine who I am and who I'm going to end up being. I get to pick what I do with my life, right? We have this very, we, we view ourselves as being these kind of in a little independent bubble. And we don't see that we're constantly being formed by the environment around us. And that environment is shaping us towards certain ends, certain types of worship towards certain gods. This doesn't mean that we don't have the ability to make choices, but those choices that we're making are choices that are responding to those gods that have been given to us, right? We're either choosing to bow down and worship the gods our parents have handed to us or reject them. But either way, we're responding. But it means that, yeah, these values have been given to us by the community of people that we're a part of, whether it's our culture and society or our immediate family. And it's not even just the, like I said, these specific objects of worship, right? Like, well, worship Baal or, or, or Yahweh, but it's, it's a way of worshiping, too. And we actually see this earlier in the chapter. So it doesn't just teach us how to interact or who, which God to interact with, but how to interact with them and how to interact with others. So because Gideon grew up worshiping Baal and Asherah, and in this relationship, if you give the God the right thing, they'll give you what you need, right? This is almost like an exchange we often characterize, and that's very simplistic, but in a sense, it's if, if I do the right amount of things, right? I, I put in just the right amount of hours, I give just the right good enough thing, then I'll, I'll get that thing that I want, right? This was the, the exchange or the, or the direction of relationship with these gods, and he understood that these gods, they were powerful, but they were unreliable, right? They had to be appeased. They had to, you had to earn their favor. You had to barter and even sometimes coerce them in a way. And so um, the direction of this was to go to the God. And so actually we see this, we look in verse 19. So if you're with me in chapter 6 here. So God, God shows up to Gideon, and this is his response. It says, so Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. Now, if you read through uh, Exodus and Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and all the laws that told the Israelite people how to worship God, this is not one of them. This is not how you worship Yahweh, right? The, the understanding of the worship of Yahweh was he rescued us from Egypt, right? He, he came to our people and he promised faithfulness to us before we did anything for him. He brought us out of Egypt, redeemed us and saved us. And now out of response to that, out of worship, out of gratitude, we worship him, right? We, we, sacrifice, we sacrifice and give to Yahweh, but because He's given to us, 
right? So they wouldn't cook him meals or anything like that, right? They would put the, the meat or the whole sacrifice on the altar to be burned because that was the way God had commanded for them to worship. But what Gideon is thinking is, well, if I feed Baal, right, I'll cook him up this really nice meal and he'll eat it and then he'll give me what I want. Right, that's how he was taught to worship. And so now Yahweh shows up and he's like, oh, cool. This is how you worship. You, you provide the thing that God wants and he'll give you the thing that you want. And this is what he does. And what, Yahweh, what God does here, what Yahweh does, is he burns it on, he just sets it all on fire. He just burns it on the spot. Something I doubt he'd ever seen Baal do. <laughs> but God is like, this is not, now he, he accepts it, right? Like he's working with Gideon here. He's like, I know you don't got this figured out, but that's okay. But this is not how you worship the one true God. But because, but here you see that the object of his worship is intertwined with also the way in which he's worshiped. And God was so aware of this that when he sent them into the promised land, he told them, I want you in the space that I've given you, all right, the little plot of land I've given you, I wanted you to get rid of all the other people there. Because if you leave those people there and you live amongst them, you're going to adopt their ways of worship. Whether it's the gods themselves or just the way that they approach those gods, they're going to influence and change the way that you worship. So he says this in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Uh, this is Moses preparing them to go into, uh, into the promised land. It's about 200 years before Gideon. It says, You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. And the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their ashram and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So this is very harsh response because God says that Baal and Yahweh cannot coexist. You cannot worship me and worship Baal. These two things cannot coincide in your midst, and so you need to get rid of them. And so we see Gideon actually putting in practice, probably he might not have any idea this is what's happening right now, but he's putting in practice what Moses commanded in Deuteronomy. Right? He's chopping down the idol. He's getting rid of it. He's like, no, no this is not how we worship. But I think as we think about our own hearts, we need to realize that there's no neutral ground here. We're never not worshiping, which means that we're never not being formed and shaped in a certain way of worship towards a certain image of thing. Because as we worship things, we, we become like them, right? As we serve them and they begin to gain mastery over us, we start to be shaped into their image. And we think, like I said, we think of ourselves, even as Christians, we kind of think of ourselves as secular people, right? Well, worshiping is like singing songs in here. Oh, we've got words on, you know, on the screen, and I've got the Bible in front of me, and oh, that's worship. But when I'm at my job, or, you know, when I'm in the classroom, or hanging out with friends, like, that's not worship, right? That's, that's not what that is. Worship is like singing or something, right? But all of those, you know, embedded in all those practices is a way of worship and an object of worship. And so the question is not what idols, what things are we worshiping, or who are we, but which things. 
Jesus addresses this in Matthew chapter 6. Right? He's saying this problem hasn't gone away. They might not be worshiping Baal and Asherah anymore in the first century, but there's still a conflict of worship. Matthew chapter 6, you maybe may be familiar with this passage. He says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Which is kind of a shock there, right? Like we think he's talking about the two masters and the serving, and maybe, maybe we conjure up the images of like the altar to Baal and, and Yahweh, right? But he's like, you can't serve God and money. Because well, we don't think about money as a, a deity, right? Like we don't, we don't bow down and worship it. We don't sing songs to it necessarily. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> probably, look up, <laughs> probably look up some lyrics to some pop songs and like prove me wrong. But we don't think of ourselves as worshiping this. But Jesus is very poignant here, right? Like he knows you, you can't worship God and money. But the next part of this passage, which is one we really love to quote a lot, and I've never thought, I've never actually made this connection before. So I think, but he sort of gives a diagnosis of this is how you know whether or not you are serving money. Okay? He says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them all. But seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Now we hear that as like a, oh, don't feel, don't be stressed, don't be worried, right? But Jesus is talking about idolatry here. He's like, he's like are you worshiping money? Let's see. Are you anxious about all these things in your life? Yeah, you're worshiping money. You're not worshiping the one true God because in the relationship between the one true God, he provides and then we worship. But with money, we worship and then it provides. We lay our lives down to the altar of money and then it gives us, or at least promises to give us, the good things that we want. And so again, this question is, this morning is what, not are you worshiping, but what are you worshiping? There are a lot of different ways we can diagnose some of these, these modern idols, and I want to take a minute and go through a few of these, and, and I've pulled up a few different lists, do some look on, looking around on seeing what other people think, and, and here's just a few different lists. This one is uh, experience and feelings, right? So it's sort of, well, how I know what's true, how I know what's real, how I know who I am, right, is, is how I feel, right? Do I, do I feel happy? Well, then that's, everything's good, right? Do I, do I feel sad? Well, then things aren't good. Like, I need to feel a certain way. Uh, consumerism in our society, right? The need to have and to collect and to be, everything be driven by this consuming experience. The reason that none of our products last more than 10 minutes 
So we'll go buy a new, better one, right? You can get another iPhone again next year because it'll have a, one more megabyte on the camera or megapixel. You know, it's like <laughs> we have this constant need to, to consume these things. National security, right? How much is this in, ingrained in our conversation about things like immigration and our military and this, this need to feel secure as a country that we're safe. We're safe from the, the ups and downs of the world around us. Wealth, we talked about wealth, how much our society esteems wealth. And maybe that's whether the type of car that you drive or the clothes that you wear, all these other expressions of wealth. And we might not think, oh, I'm not, I don't care that much about that. But I'm sure there's some kind of social status thing out there for you. And I know there are for me that I'm like, oh, that, that would look really cool if I had that. But those things are symbols of wealth. Uh, guns, <laughs> you can see allegiance to uh, the right to, to own guns. Uh, our fame, having popularity in our culture, right? Just the way in which uh, so many people in our culture are driven by how, how popular, how famous, right? How many people do you have, followers do you have on Instagram? Uh, professional sports. Talk about a symbol of allegiance, right? How many arguments do people, we get into with people over whose team is better and why? And people willing to spend money and time and put out logos and images and all these things to, to show their devotion to their particular team. I think for, for us here, even some ideas about human rights and freedoms in America... And these things by themselves aren't all necessarily bad, but they're things that often demand our allegiance. I've got a couple somewhat, uh, some of them are somewhat humorous, uh, if you can read that. This bowl of lukewarm tapioca represents my brain. I offer it in humble sacrifice. Bestow thy flickering light forever. You can always count on Calvin to... Right? But this is sort of the way we approach entertainment sometimes. Right? Oh, I'm just going like, to watch a few episodes of Netflix before I relax, so I can relax before I go to sleep. Right? We sort of use these things to numb ourselves. Oh, it's been a stressful day, so I'll just numb out for, for a couple hours. Right? We, we, we put our brains down before entertainment. This is another one that's maybe a little more controversial. But is this not a symbol of allegiance? Right? We, we put our hands over our hearts, we sing songs of devotion, we state creeds throughout the week of allegiance to, to an ideal, to a state. And again, it's not, not all bad, right? but it, it does demand a certain allegiance from us. And I think as Americans, you can see some of the ways we, we have these ideas about, well, we're, we have freedom. Right? We're, we're free, we're free, and as if no one else in the world has ever heard of freedom. And these certain things that become allegiances, that demand our affection, demand our whole... Well, you, you can't question these things, right? You can't disrespect this symbol because that is like chopping down the idol. Right? It's offensive to us. You have to show allegiance. You have to show allegiance. Again, not, not, it's not wrong to, to life, love your country, but what are we worshiping? A much more common one for, as well for a lot of us here, right? Which, which degree, what letters after my name 
what GPA can I get? These things will make me feel worthwhile. These things will be, give me the success that I need, right? Like if, if I just get the 4.0 and I get that good letter of rec, man, I'm going to have an awesome job, which means I can get all those other things that, that will give me that good life. And this last one <clears throat> is one you'll see around town a lot, right? You'll see a lot of lawns and things like that. Um, and for the most part, like, I'm on board with most of those things. Like, that sounds, sounds good. I know love is probably talking about, you know, sexual fulfillment and not about charity. But, um, but the response, at least my response to this, that I tend to have, and this is I'll, I'll talk about some of my idols, is, is a feeling of moral superiority, right? What this says is I, I do these things. All those other people don't. Right? They're, they're not as moral as I am. I'm a better person because I live this way. I do these things. And I don't know about you, but that's, and, and like I said, I'm on board with a lot of these things, but that's, that's how it comes out in my life uh, is this sense of moral superiority to the people around me. And I like, I like the way uh, this, this one critic puts it uh, because Again, it calls out some of the, the hypocrisy in the way we think about these things. Because, so he's talking about this kind of ideal, and he says, the fashionable moral causes of our age. So the fashionable moral causes of our age have all in common that we do not have to take direct responsibility for their solution. Our moral obligation is discharged by the mere preaching and campaigning. They are the kind of causes you can comfor comfortably support from your sofa writing tweets full of moral indignation during the break of the movie you were watching and getting plenty of likes on them. And it's not, again, it's not that these causes are bad, but that they often end up being this thing that we can spend a lot of time talking about and shouting about and not actually loving the person next to us. And so do these things become just another way in which we can feel morally superior or are they actually forms of worship that play out in our lives where we treat other people as the image of God and love them because Christ has first loved us? Or do we love them so we can feel better about ourselves and then be the kind of person we want people to look at and see us to be? Uh, a few other things here. Um, these are just some little checkbox kind of things. So the first one is time and attention. So how much time and attention do you give to something? Right? These are just really simple ways. Think through, think through your day. Right? Think through your week. How much time and attention do I give to these things? You know, my phone just sent me the alert this morning that was like, here's your screen time for this week. That's a terrible new feature. Right? <laughs> I don't want to know that. It's like, how many hours have you spent doing mindless things that are not worth your time? Right? That are totally invaluable and not constructive. But I'm like looking, going through the list and being like, wow, look at what I did this week. You know? So maybe you should turn that feature on. But, but how are we spending our time and giving our attention to the things around us? Evaluation. I think this is, am I willing to step back and question my loyalty? Right? Now, again, how are we responding to things? Right? When people do things like, you know, should we blatantly disrespect the flag? I, you know, that seems rude or something. But like, how are we responding to that, right? Are we, how angry are we getting over things that offend us? Because if we're getting super offended about things, that might be a hint that there's something 
idolatrous going on there, right? If somebody starts to question our allegiance to something and we get all up in arms about it and we want, we want to fight about it because we're so angry, don't question my allegiance to this thing, right? Like that should be a clue to us that maybe, maybe we need to take a step back. Maybe this thing has too much sway over our identity and over who we are. Public devotion, again, this uh, logos, flags, symbols, right? It's sort of a, a somewhat uniquely American thing that, all of our, that most of our clothes have big logos on them, right? Because there's this brand loyalty. It's, it's an allegiance that we have to things. And again, like most of my clothes have brands on them. I'm not, let me just say it's, it's something that happens in our society as a way of showing allegiance, um, these, symbol, these public symbols of, of devotion. Uh, comparative, how, do I, how is this thing in my priority with Jesus, right? Like, does, does doing this thing or, or having this thing compete with how I relate with Jesus? The time I spend with, you know, I can't do Bible study because I have to do this other thing, right? I can't spend time with community and other Christians because I have to do this other thing, right? Like, wh- where is the competition and the tension happening? And lastly, this is where the way in which the, the worship plays out are the ethical effects, Right? What are the ways in which this worship, right? Because it's not just an object of worship, but it's a way in which we worship, a way in which we begin to treat the people around us and the relationships in our lives. What are the ethical effects of those things that I'm worshiping? Uh, so New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, he gives this just another great, I really like the way he put this. He said, when human beings give their health, heartfelt allegiance to and worship that which is not God, they progressively cease to reflect the image of God. One of the primary laws of human life is that you become like what you worship. What's more, you reflect what you, reflect what you worship not only in the object itself, but also outward to the world around. Right? So this is what I'm talking about. This. Those who worship money increasingly define themselves in terms of it, and increasingly treat other people as creditors, debtors, partners, or customers, rather than as human beings. Those who worship sex define themselves in terms of it, their preferences, their practices, their past histories, and increasingly treat other people as actual or potential sex objects. Those who worship power define themselves in terms of it and treat other people as either collaborators competitors, or pawns. These and many other forms of idolatry combine in a thousand ways, all of them damaging to the image-bearing quality of the people concerned, the quality of people concerned, and of those whose lives they touch. So as much as you like to think that what you do with your life only affects you, that's not at all the case. Just like your idols came from your parents and the people around you, so what you worship is affecting everybody around you, affecting the way you treat them, affecting the way that you relate with them. So as I'm reflecting on this this week, uh, a few of them that came up for me that I really struggle with uh, is an idol of a, a certain uh, lifestyle or culture, right? I want to seem like a cultured person. You know, I've taken art history classes so I can, oh, well, that's a Voltaire. Or that's, you know, well, I, that's not a painting, but... <laughs> We were in a museum yesterday, and they had Voltaire letters, and I was like, oh, that's so cool. But, you know, like, that's a Degas or Renoir. And, and so ha- being able to do that or, or having traveled to certain places, right, 
or eating a certain standard of food or drink, right? Like, if you guys know me, I like craft beer, which means that my tendency is to be like, oh, those people only drink that beer, right? Like, there's this whole culture of, of being snobby towards other people because you have, a, you have a higher standard. You're better than them, right? And these things become status symbols that shape how we interact with other people, right? Like, oh, you only drink that? Oh, I can't be friends with you. And I'm joking, but not. Like, <laughs> right? Like, that, like that's, a, that's a sin in my heart that I, that I have certain status symbols that I, I want to be perceived as, and it causes me to treat other people as less than the image of God because of that. Uh, another one for me has, has been academic success or knowledge. I was always a kid who wanted to take all the AP classes and get all the good grades, and I, I really liked things like GPA and SAT because it meant that I had a, a comparison, right? I could ask people, oh, what'd you get on the SAT? And then I knew, like, oh, cool, I'm smarter than that person, right? What, you know, if that's even a good metric, but, right? Or like, oh, I worked harder, so I've got a better GPA. Like, it was like, for me, I, I distinctly remember in high school judging everybody I knew in that way. Right? That was the way I interacted with other people. And it wasn't until I met some really, really awesome people who loved Jesus, who like, had no interest in going to college and weren't going to do, didn't care at all about any of that stuff, but, like, but were awesome people, and was like, oh, you don't need all of this stuff to be a good person or love Jesus or like, be a real human being. You know? but, I, but I got so focused in, in thinking about everybody in terms of these categories that that became the way in which I judged and valued other human beings. And the other one I, I mentioned before when I was talking about some of these ideas is, is the moral superiority, right? And a lot of these things I believe are real issues that we do need to care about. But I spend too much time on Facebook with people that I know, that I grew up with, who in my mind are just conspiracy theorists, you know? <laughs> like, like these, where are these people coming from? But having these convers- debates with them because they're not as advanced as I am, or they're not as morally superior as I am because they don't believe these things. Right? Instead of having grace for them and having patience with them and helping them to see and walk through these things and trusting that I also might have w- plenty of ways in which I'm still blind. Right? But even, even that progressive language that we use, right? and there are ways in which we do progress as a society, right? But even that immediately makes us go, okay, well, those people aren't as far along as I am. So I'm clearly better than they are, right? And it's a constant temptation for me to do all the time. And it's one of the things that like, God brought up this week as I was reflecting on this. And I was like, wow, these are, these are idols that I have. These are gods that I'm worshiping. And I can see it because of the way I... I treat how angry and frustrated I get about a lot of these things or how passionate I get about them, but also then the way I, I treat and categorize the people around me, that I don't love them as I should or as I could, made in the image of God, loved by him, because I, I'm using them to make myself feel a certain way. And so what do we do with our idols? We chop them down. This is what God commands to Gideon. And people get really mad, right? So verse 28 says, The men of the town rose early in the morning. Behold, the altar of Baal is broken down, and the Asherah beside it was cut down. And the second bowl was offered on the altar uh, that had been built. And they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, 
Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. And the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. This is how people respond when their idols get chopped down. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal, or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. Therefore on that day Gideon was called Jerubal, that is to say, let Baal contend against him, because he broke down his altar. So his, his, his dad actually steps in, the one who taught him how to worship Baal, and he's like, hold on, he's right, guys. If Baal is such a great god, let him stand up for himself. If he really is all that he promises to be, let him show up. But if not, don't, don't touch my son, right? <laughs> and so we see they, they cut down these altars, but we have a problem because, like I said, we, we always are worshiping. So if we just try to get rid of our idols, they're just going to be filled in by something else. Right? You're just, you're just going to find yourself worshiping something. If it's not Netflix, it's Hulu. Right? Like it, it, it just shifts from one thing to the other. And ours doesn't have ads now. It's great. But instead, God commands him, chop down the altars or chop down the idols, and build an altar to the one true God. Because you have to fill in that place of worship in your life. You have to change and transform, or be changed and transformed, in the, both the object and the ways in which you worship. Because there's no neutral space. Romans 6 talks about this, this shift here, and we read the, the first part of this passage at the beginning about slavery. And here we are in verse 17. Paul says, But thanks be to God, that you who are once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. So you've, you're no longer slaves to sin, but now you're slaves to righteousness. You can't just stop being slaves to sin because you're always a slave to something. So I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness, but what fruit you were getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed. So he's saying you got to live however you wanted, but look what it did for you. Look at the way you've treated the people around you. Look at the way your lives worked out. For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and become slaves to God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification, and its end is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what are the, the forms of worship that we replace our idolatry with so that instead we can worship the one true God? Because it can't just be Sunday morning, right? If it's just Sunday morning, you come in and you, you worship in this different way. But then what do you do all week, right? And not, I'm going to wade into whether or not this is a good idea, but think about your kids, right? They, they come here and one day a week they're, they're singing praises to God, but then five days a week they're, they're reciting the Pledge of Allegiance, right? 
literally a pledge of allegiance. Like, I pledge myself to this cause. Which one has more influence and power in your life? The one you do one day a week or five days a week? Which one is is really shaping and forming the kind of person you are and the type of allegiances that we have? And so we need to think about all of the ways in which our practices and all the ways in which our worship throughout the week is being directed at the one true God. And it's part of what we do practice here on Sunday morning, right? That when, when we come up and we take the bread in the cup, right, and, and you receive that piece of bread, right, there's a reason that we do that. Because when you receive that, it's, it's, it's showing you, it's practicing the whole way in which we worship we worship our God, is we receive from him. Right? He, doesn't, he doesn't need our affection. He doesn't need us to feed him. He doesn't need us to give. No, he does everything for us. Right? He intervenes in our lives. He rescues us and saves us. He makes us new. And we receive it by grace. Right? And so those kind of things, they, they teach us about who we are as people. That we're people who have received grace. Which means we can receive it also from others and give it to others. So all these sorts of things that we're doing here communally on Sunday morning are things that should be spilling over into the things we do during the week. It's one of the reasons that this year we're, we're in the process of putting together these discipleship groups. And many of you have already started transitioning into being part of those. But it's to help us to, to see the practices of worship that we have in our life that are either directed at God or directed at someone else. And to, to be catalytic, to transform those practices so that we are worshiping Jesus Christ in everything that we do. <clears throat> because worshiping God, again, is this whole life process. We can't compartmentalize it to one part of our day or one specific type of thing like singing, but it's everything we do. It shapes, the gospel shapes our marriages and families and jobs and how you study, how you work, how you rest, how we spend our time. And think, if it, think about it this way. If, if it was the community that shaped you to have the idols you have, do you think you could then just go and have new practices to worship the one true God on your own? No. You need a new community that's going to shape you into that because that's how that works. We get shaped into loving certain types of things and worshiping certain types of things. And so just as you've been shaped into worshiping the entertainment or the, or the money or the success at school, or what, you need to be shaped into loving Jesus Christ. And you can't do that on your own. You can only do that as part of a community of people who are also being shaped and transformed by that gospel. And so we, in, these, these, in these discipleship groups we're doing, they have these, these three different elements, right? One of them is transparency, you need to have a space to be able to confess, like, yeah, this is what I'm worshiping this week, and it's not Jesus. And you need people who can call that out in your life. You can say, you know, I've been watching the way that you do this, and I don't think that's glorifying to God. Let's talk, you know, is, is that worshipful to Jesus, or is that worshiping something else? And those are centered around the truth. So we're reading scripture together. We're, we're, we're saying, yeah, there's a lot of lies out there. There's a lot of different ways about how we ought to live our lives and what is the good life looks like. But what does scripture say? 
What does the Word of God teach us about who we are and what we're supposed to be? And let's do that together. And then lastly, there's the accountability part, right? Like, I'm going to help you be transformed into the image of Christ. Let's do that together, and I'm going to hold you accountable for that. And, and just showing up on Sunday morning is, is not ultimately going to get a lot of us there, right? Like, we, we need to be living out in the community throughout the week because every part of our day needs to be transformed into worshiping the one true God. So, uh, I invite you, my invitation to you right now and this week is to reflect on those things in your life, those practices in your life. How and what am I worshiping this week? In the way that I study, the way that I work at work, the way that I rest or don't rest, the way that I interact with my spouse or my kids or my friends, what are those things revealing about what I'm really worshiping? And maybe asking people in your life to speak into that. Hey, look, if you, if you look at my life right now, what do I care the most about? What's my top priority? What am I devoting my time and energy and attention to? And what does that reveal about what is the thing that has the allegiance of my heart? So that's my challenge to you this week, is to spend time thinking through those things and confessing those things, chopping down those idols, but then replacing them with worship of the one true God. And so investing yourself in a community of people, whether it's a small group on campus or people who are here, part of getting, surrounding yourself with brothers and sisters in Christ, you can push you towards Christ in everything that you do. And like I said, it's one of the things that we practice when we come up here every week. We remember that, that our God is a God who first initiates with us, gives to us, saves us, and that our worship is just a response, a transformed life in response to the gospel. That's the direction of our relationship with the one true God. And that's possible because of what Christ has done. Because in his life, everything he did was true worship of the one true God. His whole life was done in allegiance to Yahweh. And God himself had come down, Yahweh came down, the God, I am who I am. As Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, came down to walk among us, incarnate. And he says, I am. I am the one. And I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to God except through me. So this is the way that we have transformed life, is through the gospel. And we practice the gospel, we teach it to ourselves, we experience it, and are reminded of it as we come to this table. Because we receive that bread, just as we receive that grace, that forgiveness for our sins that we didn't deserve, made possible because of what Christ has done for us through the cross. Because he said to his disciples as he sat down together with them at the Passover meal, and he broke the bread and said, this is my body broken for you. In the same way, he took the cup and he said, this is my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. And so Jesus said, I am doing, I'm the true worship. 
Right? I'm, I'm the perfect worshiper of the one true God, and through me, you can have that access again to that one true God. And through me, you can be transformed to worship rightly that one true God. And so I want to invite you together this morning to come up together, right, as a, as a community, as a family, and receive that bread and that cup just as you received the grace of Jesus. Now, if you've never been with us before, what you're going to do is you're going to, we're going to make a line each side here, receive, you're going to take the cup and work your way back around into your rows here. And if you're here and you're not a Christian this morning, and you've never experienced uh, that grace of Jesus Christ, you don't know what it's like to worship the one true God, then I would invite you right now to stay at your seat and, and think about what, what am I worshiping? What is, what is the, the God that is driving everything that I do? Or the many gods? And think about those things this morning. And I would love to talk with you more about what it's like to be set free from those gods who want to be master over you in order to worship and serve the God who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. The God who gives first to us. So I invite you right now to join me in prayer. Uh, and then as we take communion, I'll be in the back with some others who would love to pray for you uh, during that time. Lord, we come to you and we confess that we have served other masters. That we have other gods in our life that we have chased after. Thinking that they would give us the things that we wanted most. But you alone are the one true God. You alone are worthy of our worship. Because you have loved us first. And only because of you have loved us first can we really love those around us, Lord. So we ask this morning that you would uh, reveal those places in our hearts that have been given over to worshiping other things, Lord. That you would convict us by your spirit and then set us free, God, to worship you alone, the one true God. So we pray all this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.